What's up, capitalists? Hey, it's your uh, intrepid guide to the 21st century, Nate Houseman here, and I'm coming to you live on YouTube, Rumble, Theta, the Theta Network, and the um, recording of this live stream will be available on Odyssey and podcast platforms. And so if you're not watching right now, that's cool. You can catch me later. But I'm going to go over some cool news stories tonight, and... We're going, to, we're going to talk about why the, the, the markets are crashing, why gas is up, and why the economy sucks. We're also going to talk about why the Roe v. Wade leak happened last week. And we're going to talk about some things that are not going to be on YouTube. So I think like at some point I'm going to like turn off YouTube, and we're going to continue the conversation on Rumble and Theta because YouTube, they just don't like certain topics. So, did you see 2,000 Mules? I did. Yeah. So, starting with gas prices, and the Gateway Pundit is just, you know, they, they are just on top of things as far as, like, certain topics. Gas prices reached new all-time high under Joe Biden at $4.37 per gallon, second all-time high in two months. You have to work really. You, work, you have to work really hard to be this bad. So, gas prices have doubled since the um, since the resident went into a uh, his little outpost there, and I think we all know why. Like he he shut off you know all the uh, drilling on federal lands. Um, he, he he reneged on a whole bunch of you know pipeline projects, and he's just making it he's they really want us to be, you know, stuck in our homes, you know, not dependent on, say, a corporate job rather than having, rather than succeeding in business. And we are reaching the end of a system that's been going on for really since 1913, but got really bad in 1971 when the dollar went off the gold standard. We just haven't been using real money ever since then. Ever since we stopped using gold for money, it's just money hasn't been real. And if you if you want to know why workers' wages have not kept up with prices, it's because certain things don't match with inflation. And labor doesn't match with inflation. It got really bad in 1971, and it's only gotten worse in the last... Really, the last couple of years, ever since the uh, COVID lockdowns, and it's just happening fast enough that we can notice it now. So, the answer, really, the answer to all of this is to fix the money system, and either to get back on a gold standard, get it back on a silver standard, or get back to um, Bitcoin. We're gonna we're gonna talk about Bitcoin a little later. You know, it's really important that you um kind of take control of your money. That's how we're gonna really take back control of our lives and the political system. So let's look at some other prices today. Commodities markets on Bloomberg. Websites like Bloomberg and CNBC, they are only good for their, you know, ticker. But let's just see here. Crude oil is down a little bit. Gold is down 46%. No, 0.46%. 
Silver is down slightly. Corn is up. Wheat is up. Cotton is up. Cocoa is way down. And let's look at crypto. And we're, gonna, we're just going to scan some market analysis headline articles in a little bit here. Yeah, so let's just move on to the um, stock market. Uh, yesterday, stocks closed sharply lower as the growth worries accelerate. You know, these are all, a lot of these are, you know, corporate, big corporations, publicly traded companies. And a lot. And a lot of people are just losing faith in corporations. Like they've, in the examples of big tech media companies like Disney, um, even companies that just have, you know, questionable advertising, a lot of people just don't want to deal with certain, certain companies. Coca-Cola is another good one, another example. Like they, um, they protested against the um, election integrity laws in Georgia, and people have punished them in due course. So that's it. That's yesterday. Stocks have are somewhat mixed. It looks like um, tech stocks are weighing down the overall weighing down the overall stock market. Stocks ended mixed Tuesday. This is from the street.com. Investors attempted to team a three-day sell-off in Wall Street on Wall Street that wiped away trillions in value from global stock portfolios. Uh, the Dow Jones ended, ended down 84 points, while the S&P 500 is down 16%. Um, growth concerns intensifying amid China's ongoing COVID crisis. Yeah, China decided to lock down the country again. Kind of makes you wonder what they're, you know, preparing for. We, you know, rightful President Trump has said, oh, they're going to try to invade Taiwan. You know, we're we're watching Ukraine right now, Russia invading Ukraine. Trump says Taiwan is next. So the whole um, lockdown in China might be a pretense or something else, like some other preparations. But there's also the uh, Federal Reserve rate raising um, interest rates. That's, you know the cost of borrowing money and a lot of, you know, a lot of investors, they borrow money in order to invest. Like a lot of, you know, a lot of banks invest in the stock market. It's almost like, you know, the federal reserve and the treasury, they print the money. It goes to the commercial banks and a lot of commercial banks ha have investment departments. So that goes to the stock market. So in a way the federal reserve is like the stock market is like corporate welfare. You know, the, the banks are middlemen, but all these, you know, publicly traded corporations, they get almost, they get money from the government in a sense. So, but one, and that's, and that's why the stock market just blew up in the last, you know, really, really since, you know, all the money printing started in um, 2020 because, some of it went to went to regular 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 Americans in their you know stimulus and unemployment checks, but bulk of it went to um 
stocks. And some of the biggest stockholders are corporate executives. So that's why we had such a, you know, huge transfer of wealth. Because when the when the Fed prints more money, the dollar loses loses value because it becomes less rare. So people's, you know, buying power went down. So now that the, now that the Fed is, is supposedly saying they're going to get tough on inflation, try to try to tamp it down through interest rates, that's causing a correction in the market, and it's causing it's causing a correction in Bitcoin as well. But um, we're going to see later how that's we really should view Bitcoin separately. So Bitcoin has found support at the thirty thousand dollar range. Um, Altcoins, those are any cryptocurrencies that are like other than Bitcoin. They have perform. Bitcoin stabilizes around 30k. It's it's been it dropped down from like the 40 something range down to 30 just in the last few days. And 30,000 has been kind of um a well-known support level really since, you know, over the last couple of years. So we'll see we'll see if this holds, but I was watching a uh, Kitco news on YouTube and they said, yeah, a lot of um, investors treat Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies the same way they treat uh, tech stocks on, on, on the stock market. They kind of think of Bitcoin kind of like lumped in with say, you know, big tech like Facebook or Twitter or Amazon or Apple. And with people like dumping their tech stocks over censorship issues, they kind of dump, they kind of throw in, Bitcoin with the bath water, throw out Bitcoin with the bath water. But um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is something new. Like, you got to think of Bitcoin kind of like as digital gold. So that's that's kind of what helps me think of consider think of it as far as like how, how it can be used as currency. You know, for thousands of years, people used gold and silver as money. They would stamp gold coins and use that as much and use that to, to pay for things. The only problem with gold is that it's heavy and it and it takes up space and you need to put it in a bank or somewhere else secure to keep it from being stolen or just to keep it safe. And paper money developed as a way of just as as a certification of that you had that you had gold in the bank. So if you gave someone like cash money to pay for something, that just transferred ownership of your gold to the person to the merchant or to the professional or whoever you were, was working for you. So over time, you know, the Federal Reserve came around in 1913 under questionable circumstances and, and later, um, America's gold supply was nationalized. It was all put into Fort Knox, another like government, you know, government, you know, facilities. So, and not only the dollar was pegged to gold, like a cash in your wallet meant that you owned some of the gold in Fort Knox, but that ended in 1971 because before that in the sixties, uh, LBJ, President Johnson, he ramped up government spending more than, you know, ramped up the debt more than what, you know, we had in, physical assets so in 1971 president nixon was forced to take gold off 
the dollar off the gold standard to help pay, to help pay for all the, all the debts like the Great Society and the Vietnam War. So, and ever since then, we've just had fiat currency, which is paper money supposedly backed by the government. And is the government really worth trusting? So, Bitcoin came around in 2009, and it was meant to be thought of as digital gold. When the when the dollar was taken off of gold in 1971, dollar gold then became an asset that you invest in. Like you can buy gold; um, it's worth a varying amount of money based on the uh, markets, and it's something that you can keep in your portfolio. Bitcoin, if you think of it like digital gold, think of it like gold that's decentralized. You know, it's spread out on the software that runs Bitcoin is spread out on computers all over the world. Like no single person or company or organization or government controls Bitcoin. It's decentralized and it's of it's limited supply. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin divided up by eight decimal points called Satoshis. And right now you can, you can buy Bitcoin, you can invest in it. It'll go up and down value. It's speculative, but at some point we're going to have to like ditch the fiat currency system and go back to sound money. And Bitcoin will be an example, will be one option for that. So we, we buy Bitcoin now, but at some point we're, we're thinking like maybe in the, um, I think they're calling it, they're calling it the um, inflection point or the, um, I forgot the term used by Kitco, but at some point we're going to, actually use Bitcoin as units of value that we can that we can use as payment. And the uh, the infrastructure isn't there yet, but people are just need to you know understand what, what how Bitcoin works. And they're still learning. So let's read this article by a bitcoinmagazine.com. Bitcoinmagazine.com is like a libertarian's dream. They've got a really good. We talked. I read from them last week and last week on the on the on the stream, and how governments basically use corporations as extensions of themselves. Right now, we're going to see why how banks trying to discredit Bitcoin. Each year, Bitcoin continues to grow in stature. Bitcoin is going mainstream by every metric: financial value, adoption rates, transaction volume, you name it. But not everyone's happy Bitcoin adoption is growing. In particular, the banking industry feels threatened by Bitcoin's rise and continues to wage war on the cryptocurrency. The banks don't like Bitcoin, shouldn't be a surprise. Satoshi Nakamoto's invention is the greatest disruption to the age-old monetary system in decades. As a peer-to-peer network for creating and exchanging value, Bitcoin may render banks useless. To protect their position, bank institutions have resorted to the classic tool of warfare, propaganda. By spreading misinformation, banks hope to discredit Bitcoin, reducing public opinion and encouraging stricter regulation. A brief history of big finance's propaganda war against Bitcoin. From the outset, big finance must have realized Bitcoin could potentially disrupt the banking system. But they chose to believe its use would remain restricted to drug dealers, computer geeks, cypherpunks, libertarians, and other fringe elements. But as cryptocurrency adoption grew, especially among institutional investors, panic spread in the banking system. For the first time, the possibility that this magic internet money may displace banks was real. 
Thus, banks launched a coordinated effort to discredit cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin was and is a favorite target, given its status as the world's first and most popular cryptocurrency. In 2014, Jamie Dimon, favorite punching bag of this program, the billionaire president and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, America's largest bank, declared Bitcoin a terrible store of value at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. However, that didn't stop the state of New York from issuing licenses to Bitcoin exchanges the following year. Diamond followed up with his criticism of Bitcoin in 2015, saying the cryptocurrency would never receive approval from governments. And this, in his words, no government will ever support a virtual currency that goes around borders and doesn't have the same protocols. Not satisfied, the J.P. Morgan Chase Supremo launched its biggest attack on Bitcoin yet at the 2015 Barclays uh, Global Financial Services Conference. Not only did he call Bitcoin a fraud similar to tulip mania, but he also threatened to fire anyone who traded Bitcoin via his company. Diamond isn't the only big finance stalwart who has continued to undermine Bitcoin. President of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, has also been critical of Bitcoin. At a Reuters Next conference, Lagarde branded Bitcoin as a highly speculative asset, adding that it has been used to conduct some funny business and some interesting and totally reprehensible money laundering activity. This is even as the Central European Central Bank was considering launching its digital currency called the digital euro at the time. And um, yeah, Bitcoin is speculative right now. And it's, you know, it's a very volatile and very, you know, high performing asset. But like I said, right now you invest in Bitcoin, later you do business with Bitcoin. The European Central Bank, too, has often lent itself to the anti-Bitcoin propaganda campaign. In its 2021 Financial Stability Review, the Apex Banker compared surges in Bitcoin's price to the infamous, infamous South Sea bubble. Bitcoin's ex exorbitant carbon footprint and potential use for illicit purposes are grounds for concern, it added in the report. Even the world's largest financial institutions have also joined in, the, joined in on the anti-Bitcoin party. For example, the World Bank refused to support El Salvador's plan to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender, adducing environmental and transparency shortcomings of the cryptocurrency. The International Monetary Fund also urged the Latin American nation to drop Bitcoin earlier this year. Of course, there are many, many more instances of old money institutions sowing doubt and spreading misinformation about Bitcoin. Nevertheless, these statements all point to the same conclusion. Banks hate Bitcoin and will stop at nothing to discredit. Some financial players have taken another tack in their disinformation campaign. This involves criticizing Bitcoin, but praising the underlying blockchain technology that powers the system. And this is where their uh, central bank digital currency, you know, notion comes where people are, countries are going to start, you know, creating digital dollars and digital euros. This is money, this is electronic money that's controlled by central banks and central governments. But it's not a true cryptocurrency because it's centralized. It's controlled. Banks see the potential of blockchain technology to revolutionize payments and want to co-opt the technology for their benefit. For example, J.P. Morgan Chase, the avowed Bitcoin critic, has created a so-called cryptocurrency called JPM Coin, running on its quorum blockchain. Central banks have also touted blockchain's capability to power central bank digital currencies, cryptocurrencies issued and backed by governments. Such assets are pegged to a fiat currency, like the dollar or the euro, much like a stable coin. And stable coins are uh, examples of 
cryptocurrencies that are like pick the dollar. Like you can use them in cryptocurrency cryptocurrencies exchanges to like buy and sell or trade different up uh, various other cryptocurrencies. The the most popular or most well known stablecoin is Tether. You um and I use Tether on my um on my on my account with a uh, Pinex. So um Pinex is a is a cryptocurrency exchange. You put some money in it and you can assi- and you can assign like a trading bot to a uh, buy and sell for you. But you have you have to use the uh, Tether coin to um do that. You really can't use digital dollars. So Tether one Tether is supposed to be equal to one dollar. So that's what a stable coin is. Getting back to the article, the Bank for International Settlement ripped into cryptos in a June 2021 report, describing them as speculative assets used to facilitate money laundering, ransomware attacks, and other financial crimes. Bitcoin, in particular has few redeeming public interest attributes when also considering its wasteful energy footprint, the report declared. Ironically, the BIS advocated for CBDCs in the same report. Here's an excerpt. Central bank digital currencies represent a unique opportunity to design a technology advanced, a techno- technologically advanced representation of central bank money, one that offers the unique features of finality, liquidity, and integrity. Such currencies should form the backbone of a highly efficient new digital payment system by enabling broad access and providing strong data governance and privacy standards based on digital ID. The Bitcoin bad blockchain good line has become a, become a favorite refrain of banks and fintech operators in response to Bitcoin's popularity. As always, this argument misses the point. Without Bitcoin's decentralized architecture, blockchain-based payment monetary systems are useless. Permissioned blockchains like Quorum suffer from centralization and single points of failure. Problems Nakamoto sought to correct by creating Bitcoin. The same issues plague CBDCs. As this author explained in a recent article, centralized control of a digital dollar or pound caused the same problems witnessed with fiat currencies. With central banks controlling every inflow and outflow of money, it'd be all too easy to conduct financial surveillance, implement unpopular monetary policies, and conduct financial discrimination. Yeah, if if you... um, Say if the government doesn't like your um, political stance, your political position, or if you um, have bought too much, you know, gasoline or fossil fuels in the in the previous month, they can actually shut down your account. That's that's the fear that people have with central bank digital currencies. So, um, a bigger problem with this line of argument is that it fails to consider Bitcoin's biggest strength, crypto economics. Satoshi's greatest contribution was the novel combination of economic incentives, game theory, and applied cryptography necessary for keeping the system secure and useful in the absence of a centralized entity. Centralized blockchains with poor incentives are open to attack just like any other legacy system. So why are banks scared of Bitcoin? Traditional banks have long made money by charging users to store and use their money. The average account holder pays account maintenance fees, debit fees, overdraft fees, and a plethora of charges designed to profit the bank. All the while, the bank loans out the money sitting in the account while giving users only a fraction of the earned interest. Yeah, that's that's that, that's the bank's biggest money maker. They loan the money. They're, they're only required to keep maybe one-tenth of the actual money in the bank. They loan it out to other people and businesses, and then they uh, make the money back with interest. That's called uh, fractional reserve banking. Bitcoin, however 
poses a threat to the banking industry's revenue model. With cryptocurrencies, there are no institutions helping users to store, manage, or use their money. The owner remains completely in control of their Bitcoin. But wait, there's more. Bitcoin makes it possible to transfer money to anyone instantly, irrespective of, of the amount involved or the recipient's location. And users can do that without relying on an intermediary like their local bank. On average, Bitcoin power transactions are faster and cheaper than transactions through banks. Consider how much time it takes to process an international transfer and the hefty fees that banks charge. Except for minor fees, um, people are not paying anyone else to process transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain. Amounts of any size, large or small, can be moved with this without the usual red tape. In less than 10 minutes, Bitcoin processes an irreversible money transfer. Banks simply cannot match that. Store value. Banks help consumers, banks help customers arrange long-term investments in gold, bonds, and other assets to secure the value of their money. And they charge a fee for custodianship, investment consulting, and portfolio management. What happens when people figure out they don't have to rely on banks to store value? Due to its intrinsic properties, Bitcoin is rapidly emerging as a preferred store of value. Bitcoin is scarce. Only 21 million units will ever be produced, but it's also fungible and portable. This makes it even better than traditional stores of value like gold. Because anyone can easily buy Bitcoin and HODL, that stands for hold on for dear life, banks can no longer make money off shilling asset management plans. Banks like JP Morgan have adapted by selling Bitcoin-based investments as futures but that won't save them. Banks have long survived by manipulating the financial system for private gains. The 2008 financial crisis resulted from underhanded dealings by some of the world's biggest banks, including Lehman Brothers, which later declared bankruptcy. For instance, banks always lend out more money than they own in what's called leveraging. Should, any, should everyone decide to withdraw their money from banks, the entire industry would, event, would inevitably crash. Bitcoin allows people to be their own banks. Money in a Bitcoin wallet cannot be manipulated or used by anybody apart from the holder. For the first time, people now have power to control their money. The intensity of the banking industry's information war shows just how much they fear Bitcoin, as they should. It's only a matter of time before Bitcoin permeates every financial sector. Offshore settlements, escrow, payments, asset investments, and more. When that happens, Banks have become the latest victims of technological disruption. Just as Netflix replaced video rentals and Amazon replaced bookstores, Bitcoin will replace banks. And no amount of doubt sowing and misinformation will reverse that. So, right now, Bitcoin's on sale. It's down from like probably, it's down maybe 50 some percent, 53 ish percent from its all time high. So, but you know, it's, it is a pretty good store of value. So, one of, one of the ways you can you can uh, help my uh, program and help my website is um click on if click on the referral links in the description. You can you can join Uphold, which is a very user friendly you know beginner friendly um, crypto exchange, and I'll get like a referral bonus or, or referral commission. But you can buy, but you can join Uphold and buy Bitcoin and gold yourself. You can um. Dollar cost average, which is just means um, put a little bit of your money into Bitcoin at a time. That's the safest way to invest. Like whatever the market does, however it goes up and down, you can um, just be consistent and you'll probably, you know, 
make a profit within a year or so. Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation. And eventually when the whole fake money system collapses, we won't need to worry about inflation anymore because we'll have real money. And, you know, I love Bitcoin. I do think gold and silver have a place in the uh, in the economic future as well. So um, click on the link to Acre Gold and you can actually have gold delivered to your, you know, your residence um, monthly. You uh, pay a subscription, you pay a subscription fee and whatever the price of gold is, whenever you reach a certain amount, you'll have it delivered to you. So that's another way to support yourself and support the program. Let's read another article about banks. MasterCard, Visa, and banks all profit from inflation without doing anything. Merchants pay swipe fees to accept credit and debit cards and are forced by card network rules to pass the costs onto all consumers, including cash customers, with higher prices and at the store and at the pump. As I told the Senate, whoever this author is, uh, the big banks are happy with inflation. When gas prices double, their percentage-based swipe fee revenue doubles, without the banks making anything or doing anything. So, um, so yeah, inflation has been very good to the um, the, the uh, credit card companies, but hasn't been so good to like the um, the mortgage lenders or the loan officers at banks because no one's wanting to um, take out a loan to um, buy anything big. So the prices of we've got a real estate bubble that's hopefully cooling down because of you know decreased demand. We've got we've got an automobile market that's like stupid expensive right now. So no one's taking out no one's taking out a car loan. So it's good news and bad news for the banks. So and once people realize we need to get back to sound money rather than fiat money. I think that's when we'll kind of figure out we'll kind of get out of this get out of this mess. So um that's kind of that's kind of why we shouldn't we shouldn't worry. We need to prepare. So stock up on gold, stock up on silver, stock up on Bitcoin while it's cheap, just dollar cost average while things go sideways or down. And once once the fiat system does go belly up. You'll have something you'll have something to kind of like, you know, transition into. Speaking of loans, they kind of want to they're talking about forgiving for uh, student loans. And this is something I feel strongly about because I'm very fortunate. Like my fam my family owns farmland and that's what paid for college for me. So I don't have any student loan debt. But I am just irate at what my generation and younger had to, had to deal with as far as like loans because the job market in the 21st century has isn't really keeping up with inflation because of the whole fiat fiat system and lots of people lots of millennials and um zoomers they're not making enough money to pay back their loans even and even if they pay back the principal the interest is killing them However, it's also not right to, uh, you know, totally cut off the loans because 
these student loans were backed by the government, and that's just going to transfer the debt from the students to other taxpayers. It'd be the biggest giveaway in American history. This is from World Net Daily. Resident Joe Biden wants to cancel more than $1 trillion of outstanding student loan debt. Biden has already delayed for more than a year on a student loan repayment, and under his new rules, most delinquent and deadbeat borrowers would never have to repay. What a deal for the people who never paid a dime back of the tuition money they owe Uncle Sam. This plan makes suckers out of the millions who have felt honor-bound to pay off their debts. The author's wife uh, spent years after graduating from college diligently writing checks to pay off the tens of thousands of dollars of loans. That's the way it works when you borrow money and you sign a commitment to pay the money back. Think about what would happen if this loan repayment policy were to be implemented. Who would ever pay off a student loan ever again after this blanket forgiveness program? Who would benefit? The most recent Federal Reserve survey of consumer finances found that only 22% of families had student loan debt, and that student debt has consistently been disproportionately held by higher income families. So this is a giveaway to the financially successful students and families paid for by middle-class workers, millions of whom didn't go to elite universities in the first place. Once student loans moved to free college for everyone, university tuitions, which are already soaring at two or three times the inflation rate, would race further ahead of all other consumer prices. And you know why you know college tuition is so crazy? Is because of government-backed student loans. If the um, if a student says, um, "Okay, I can pay now, and I can pay you the institution, the the school now, and pay back later," the schools are going to charge whatever they want. If you had someone with a with a credit card with you know a ten thousand dollar you know or $10,000, you know, or $100,000, you know, certain, you know, limit, you could probably charge anywhere up to that if you're, run, if you're running a business or, you know, running a store. The Biden administration has misdiagnosed the fundamental problem here. To it, college universities have become fat, flabby, and inefficient money burners with no accountability, no oversight, no getting rid of bad teachers and professors, no looking under the hood to see where extraneous costs could be axed. No demand on tenured professors to teach one or two classes a year. If student loan debt has to be retired, why should taxpayers pick up the tab? Why not force universities with massive endowments, in many cases in the tens of billions of dollars, to use that money to pay off the debts students incurred while they receive virtually worthless, useless sociology, gender studies, and psychology degrees? Yeah, if, you know... If a customer is unhappy with the product, they should get a refund from the um, business they bought it from. If the student is unhappy with the education they got, they should get a refund from the school. Doesn't that make sense? This would incentivize schools to cut their tuitions and, and their costs, something the academic elites are desperately trying to avoid. Democrats think that buying votes this November by making college essentially free will win them elections. But there is no free lunch, and there is no free college. It's just a question of who pays the piper. And it shouldn't be you. So, just a happy little thought there. One more economic story. And we'll look at why a lot of people are turning against, you know, woke corporations. Federal Reserve's 
Kashkari reveals an uncomfortable truth. This is from Bloomberg. And I just, you know, badmouth Bloomberg earlier, but we'll just kind of like pick through this article. This is um Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis President Neil Kashkari published an essay Friday in which he admitted an uncomfortable truth. He wrote that if the supply chain disruptions don't resolve soon, U.S. Federal Reserve may be forced to spur a recession. We're probably in a recession right now. I mean, people are barely can barely afford to live. Kashkari pointed to the war in Ukraine and lockdowns in China's in China's in China related to uh, COVID-19 as reasons why supply chains haven't returned to normal as quickly as many expected. And if factories, shipping lines, and commodity producers don't start operating more smoothly in the near future, then we will likely have a big push, have to push long-term real rates to a con contractionary stance to bring supply and demand into balance, he added. In other words, such an outcome would force the Fed to raise its target for the uh, federal funds rate, currently a range of 0.75% to 1%, well above the 3% that is priced in the futures market by February 2023. So they're blaming, they're blaming supply chains, they're blaming China, they're blaming Russia, and you got to wonder why supply chains are in trouble to begin with. Are they... Is there a lot of bureaucracy? Is there, are they dependent on gas? Are they dependent on fossil fuels? Heck yeah. Who's to blame for the fossil fuel price? You know, they try to blame, they're trying to blame Russia, but who killed the Keystone Pipeline on his first day in the White House, huh? So you, you, you probably heard rumblings, probably heard whispers and maybe outright discussion of the Great Reset, the whole World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, all the global elites, they, it's almost as if they want regular people to uh, be stuck in their little uh, hamster dribble cages, accepting what, you know, the corporate elites, the government bureaucrats tell them, really not making a life, a life for themselves. It's almost as if they're sabotaging the, um, the economy. And maybe they are. That's why it's so important to take control of your money. That's why it's so, so important to take control with gold, silver, and Bitcoin. Other um, cryptocurrencies like Ethereum and Polkadot and Cardano, you got to think of them as like the next, the new, a new form of like tech stocks. You know, these are like projects with apps behind them or a um, kind of like an environment to build decentralized you know, computer applications on or websites, whatever. So you got to think of them as like tech stocks like you would Facebook or Amazon, but not prone to the centralized problems of Facebook and Amazon and Twitter. So if you're watching this on Th on Theta Network, that's, you know, that's that's another example of a, uh, of a decentralized application. It's run on the uh, Theta blockchain and you can, and you can run the uh, Theta, you know, Node uh, protocol app on your own computer. You don't you don't have to like let YouTube or Facebook host your own content. So there's that. Let's see if I have any chats. Oh, having trouble streaming to a uh, theta. Shoot. 
No comments yet, but that's fine. And so you're probably you can probably see this on Rumble and YouTube. Let's move on. Walt would never allow Disney's political activism. This is by uh, the uh, renowned conservative Cal Thomas. He's writing on the New York Post's website. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a bill passed by the Republican majority legislature that revokes a special tax exemption and other privileges for Walt Disney World in Orlando. And really, if you if you consider how the actual land area that that um, Disney World occupies, it's its own city. It's it's the size of San Francisco. This was in response to the company's current leadership and by some of its employees who have protested another bill signed by the governor that prohibits the teaching of gender issues in kindergarten through third grade. Activists and the media have mislabeled it the Don't Say Gay bill, though the word gay appears nowhere in the legislation. Walt Disney World was given tax breaks and was extended other privileges nearly 50 years ago, actually over 50 years ago, because lawmakers then believed it would create jobs, attract tourists, and produce sales tax revenue. It has been a roaring success, bringing $5 billion annually to the state. Until recently, the Disney organization stayed out of the culture wars and politics, preferring to maintain the vision of founder Walt Disney had for what came to be known as family entertainment. What will Walt Disney, who died in 1966, think of his company today? In Neil Gabler's biography, Walt Disney, The Triumph of the American Imagination, we learned that while Walt was sometimes opinionated, and especially when it came to his anti-communism beliefs, he wanted to keep Disneyland, Disney World, and his animated characters free of politics, preferring, fan preferring fantasy and storytelling. Gabler writes, Walt hadn't really been a conservative or Republican or much of anything else for the better part of his adult life. He had voted for Roosevelt in 1936, and though he had supported Republican Wendell Wilkie in 1940, he declined a request from the Wilkie campaign for an endorsement, writing, A long time ago, I found out that I knew nothing whatsoever about the game of politics, and since then have preferred to keep silent about the entire matter rather than see my name attached to any statement that was not my own. Gabler found, found a letter from someone who was lobbying Walt to make a film reel of flags with patriotic music. Walt responded, I don't go in for billboard patriotism. Joe Grant, who Gabler says accompanied Walt on several wartime visits, visits to Washington, said of him, he was very apolitical, believe me. That wasn't entirely true. Walt joined several conservatives, writes Gabler, including Ginger Rogers, George Murphy, who later became a Republican senator from California, and Robert Montgomery, informing a Hollywood Republican committee to counteract the more liberal progressive citizens of America. Cal says, Cal Thomas says, I see the difference as be, being the anti-communists we're, we're, trying to defend, we're trying to defend America and its traditions, while the progressive left was trying to was attempting to undermine them. Little has changed as reflected in the dust-up between Disney leadership and Santis, among other examples. Walt also endorsed Thomas Dewey, Republican Thomas Dewey, in the 1944 presidential campaign, writes Gabler, allowing a Dewey rally on studio grounds. He also delivered a speech for the candidate at the Los Angeles Coliseum. Despite these instances, and Walt's association with what Gabler calls red baiters, he deliberately kept politics out of, his, out of his films and theme parks. As Gabler writes, in effect, despite his republicanism, Walt Disney belonged to everyone. 
It is a pattern the current Disney leadership has not followed and why it is now suffering what should have been predictable consequences. The Disney organization should follow the vision and example of its founder and not engage the same as in actions that can only undermine his vision and the company's success. If it doesn't reverse course, it can lead to an irreparable tarnishing of the Disney brand and what has long been considered a magic kingdom. So, and that's the problem with so many companies right now. You know, especially big tech. You know, they have gone, they've gone all in on politics. They, they are, you know, A publicly traded company should try to you know, maximize its um its user base, its customer base, and if they're going to alienate people over by taking one political stand or another, well, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna be hurting the profits. They're gonna be hurting their profit margins and then the stock market. So, should a um should a corporation take any political stance at all? Well, maybe it's members, maybe it's you know, employees can. They should they should do that maybe when they're off the clock, when they're not working, when they're not maybe at the jobs. Maybe they can probably have conversations with their, their coworkers. But their first their first responsibility is to the customers. So consider that. Here's one example of a company not serving the customers and paying the consequences. Elon Musk plans bloodbath for woke Twitter employees after he takes over. Report. So Elon Musk has pretty much sealed the deal, but he doesn't take full control of Twitter for probably six months. Elon Musk is planning to work, purge its woke employees after his takeover of big tech platform Twitter is complete. The billionaire tech CEO is expected to fire at least 1,000 employees, a new report indicates. Elon Musk is planning to fire 1,000 staffers at Twitter as soon as his purchase of the social media platform is complete, the Daily Mail reported. And I'm reading this off of uh, Becker News. This is a great blog. I uh, share articles from, Beck, from Kyle Becker quite often, and I kind of add my own little meme commentary. It's believed he will fire many of the firm's woke staff following the transfer of ownership, which will take around six months, after which Musk is likely to wield the axe. But then, within the next three years, Musk anticipating, anticipates making thousands of new hires, swelling the ranks to around 11,000 employees, up from 7,500 7, currently. Numbers at the company would fluctuate, rising to uh, 9,225 employees this year, before falling to 8,332 in 2023, the report continued, then adding a further 2,700 workers by 2025. Most of the jobs being shelved would occur during the takeover period, according to the pitch deck Musk presented this week to investors and seen by the New York Times, the report added. While Musk expects advertising revenue to decrease to 45% of total revenue by 2028, he plans for subscriptions to pull in the remainder of the revenue, potentially adding another $10 billion. Like, they've come out with uh, Twitter Blue, which lets you, um, it's kind of like a uh, a premium version of Twitter, like a professional version, like you can um, pay to promote your um, posts, or you can you can accept tips from other people, and 
Twitter will take a uh, take a percentage take a percentage of that. So there's that. So yeah, I mean, Twitter has been a big tech uh, a dictator's dream. They've just been like. They've been like ground zero for cancel culture. They've been ground zero for the uh, woke political movement and other, you know, corporations through the propaganda. They've been, they are awash with fake accounts and bots. And if Elon can clean that up, that's going to um, drive the deep state nuts. That's going to drive the uh, corporate government Anchor Nexus for a loop. And that's why we get stories like the, uh, that's why we get stories like the um, Roe v. Wade leak. So we talked about that a lot last week, but this, this leak, this, um, this, this news making happens for a few reasons. One of them is they're trying to distract from a lot of other issues, like Dinesh Souza's, you know, documentary. They're also trying to um, distract from the uh, COVID jab. Don't call it a vaccine. It's not. It's a. It's a drug. And they're also thinking, well. The George Floyd riots in 2020 were such a Great party. Let's do, let's let's try to do it again. They're trying to whip up a mob. Gaming journalist Simon Gwynn questions whether you should, you would kill Supreme Court justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito given the chance. This is off of Bounty in the Comics, another great website. Gaming journalist Simon Gwynn took to Twitter where he questions whether you would kill Supreme Court justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito if you were given the chance. How is this not an insurrection? How is this not a call to violence? Is this any? How is this any better than the um, the video that Twitter erased of Donald Trump calling for peace on January sixth and then booting him, booting him for? By the way, Elon Musk says he will reverse Trump's Twitter ban, but we see. Stories like Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot appears to push for violent insurrection with dangerous call to arms. Um, this is about this is about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court. We've got Senator Chuck Schumer endorsing criminal contest when asked if he's comfortable with protests outside the homes of conservative Supreme Court justices. Yeah, you've got. Bunch of, bunch of the demonstrations, both for and against the uh, the judges, trying to pressure a decision one way or another. You know the um, the Supreme Court ruling isn't official. Yeah, it's just an opinion that was written in February, and they're still trying to uh, fine tune it. It's not supposed to be available until the summer. But um, there's that. 
Supreme Court justices moved to an undisclosed location due to threat from pro-abortion activists. So this is um, Samuel Alito. He's been moved to a safe house. And this is, it's 2022. It's an election year. It's a, it's the uh, midterms. And they're expecting a Republican blowout, a red wave. People have seen just how toxic the Democrats are. And the left is just itching for any reason to uh, try to reap try to repeat the conditions of 2020 when they um, have their supposed, you know, victory. So, and another part of that is um, the COVID lockdowns, the the mail-in ballots. So, a few more stories, and I think I'll turn off YouTube, but... Twenty states threatened legal action over the uh, Department of Homeland Security's disinformation board. This is from ReclaimTheNet.org. Attorneys general from 20 conservative states are threatening legal action against the Department of Homeland Security's newly formed disinformation governance board, which they said will have a chilling effect on freedom of expression and described as un-American. Virginia's Attorney General Jason Miares and 19 other attorneys general sent a letter to Alejandro Mayorkas the Homeland Security Secretary, demanding the dissolution of the Disinformation Governance Board. This is an unacceptable and downright alarming encroachment on every citizen's right to express his or her opinions, engage in political debate, and disagree with the government, the Attorney General wrote. Republicans are taking issue with the timing of the new board as it comes after it was revealed that the White House was flagging posts on behalf of social media platforms. Additionally, it comes just after Tesla CEO Elon Musk a self-described free speech absolutist made a bit for Twitter and it came just around the time just before, you know, the uh, 2000 mules documentary. Suddenly, just as Elon Musk prepares to acquire Twitter with the stated purpose of correcting the platform's censorship of free speech, you announced the creation of a disinformation governance board as the Biden administration apparently loses its crit- a critical ally in its campaign to suppress speech. It deems problematic. You have created a new government body to continue that work within the federal government. The, contemporary, the contemporaneous occurrence of these two events is hard to explain away as mere coincidence. It instead raises troubling questions about the extent of the Biden administration's practice of coordinating with private sector companies to suppress disfavored speech. The Republicans also expressed concern about the leader of the board, Nina Jankowitz, noting that she is often in error, error but never in doubt. She claimed the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian propaganda, a theory that has since been proven wrong. The Attorney General argued that the board is illegal because there is no statutory authority supporting its creation. Unless we turn back now and disband this Orwellian disinformation governance board immediately, the underside will have no choice but to consider judicial remedies to protect the rights of their citizens. The letter concludes. So, and the thing about that is things aren't really getting worse, they're getting exposed. You know, like I said, Corporations have been extensions of the government for many years now because through regulations and um, lawmaking and bureaucracy. We, we covered that last week. So really, 
big tech has been a proxy of the deep state, the far left, as far as like throttling, throttling, you know, free speech. So now that one large big tech platform has been taken over by a free speech absolutist, the government's forced to show their hand. So they're forced to uh, go all in and unconstitutional. So, and I think at this point, I'm going to turn off YouTube. And if you want to continue hearing some good content, follow me on Rumble. So I'm signing up on YouTube right now. Hopefully this continues on Rumble. Okay, so if you're on Rumble, let's get to the good stuff. I saw 2,000 mules on Saturday. I um, I went on Dinesh D'Souza's Locals page. I uh, I paid the uh, $29 and change to, to see it, and I saw it. And it's just confirmed, you know, <coughs> everyone knew, everyone knows. Biden still Biden cheated. Not everyone's really in a position to say so safely, but some people might lose their jobs if they say say something. They might, you know, they might be in a tough situation with a family member or a romantic partner. But staying on with uh, reclaimthenet.org, 2000 Mules documentary grosses over $1 million in 12 hours on locals and rumble. A big win for all tech. 2000 Mules, the first Dinesh D'Souza documentary to be launched on the free speech video sharing platform Rumble and the subscription platform Locals, grossed over $1 million in less than 12 hours. Rumble, 10,000 Mules gross sales, which began Saturday, May 7th at noon, are going to have to put it in an estimated box office top 10 for the weekend of May 6th through May 8th. Locals president Asif Lev said, Supporting creative independence is core to our values, and we're thrilled to offer creators a new way to distribute and sell movies independently. The success of 2000 Mules on Rumble is a great sign for creators who do not want to be silenced or censored for their speech, D'Souza added. Rumble's, Rumble tweeted that Locals is making history with 2000 Mules and proving that independent creators now have freedom and a real choice. We're no longer beholden to big tech and corporate media, Rumble added. D'Souza's documentary focuses on voter fraud and ballot stuffing during the 2020 U.S. presidential election. These allegations and similar claims have been mass censored on many big tech platforms, including the biggest video sharing platform, YouTube, which banned videos that allege widespread fraud or errors changed the, 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 the 2020 U.S. presidential election outcome more than a year ago. Rumble and Locals, which are powered by Rumble's cloud infrastructure, provided censorship protection for 2,000 mules and Rumble has vowed to allow debate, discussion, challenges, opinion, and dialogue, even if one party feels that it's wrong or incorrect. 2000 Mules is concluded with annual subscriptions to D'Souza's local community and can also be purchased directly on D'Souza's Locals page. The movie can be streamed on Locals or Rumble, both of which have mobile apps and smart TV apps. Rumble's smart TV app is available on Roku, Apple, Android, and Fire TV, while local smart TV app is available for Android and Fire TV. So 
I'm going to have to switch to Roku. I've got a Samsung Smart TV, and I, and I watch YouTube on there. I probably watch too much YouTube, but if I can watch Rumble on the TV, I'm I'm set. The successful release of twenty of two thousand mules is one of several milestones Rumble has reported this year. Several big names, including the popular the popular Brazilian podcaster Monarch, have embraced the platform after facing big tech censorship. In its first two weeks, Monarch racked up racked up over 1.2 million views on his Rumble channel. Rumble is also powering President Trump's Truth Social platform, which shot up to the top of the U.S. App Store charts days after migrating to Rumble Cloud. So, yeah, so I'm on. I'm finally on, on Truth Social. I got I got off the waiting list, and it's like Twitter, but more fun. You get better engagement, and Twitter's actually been. I I've actually been on Twitter a lot too, and it's like. It's been it's been a party for us patriots, so that's why I'm getting so that's why I'm getting back into the um, podcasting and streaming game because I hopefully I have a chance to make this grow and share some insight with you. So if you saw two thousand, so if you haven't seen two thousand mules, and I recommend that you do just to get the details, but I'll summarize it. You know, Catherine Engelbrecht and uh, what's his name. This um very you know very experienced uh, election integrity auditor they um they track the cell phone data they track the, the uh, cell phone data of of people who were who were caught milling around uh about drop boxes and they were able to um filter out okay. How many, you know, how many people repeatedly go to the uh, drop boxes? How many, and how many, and how many of them also repeatedly go to these uh, nonprofit organizations? And how often do they go back and forth or on a route? And how often, and how many stops do they make? Are any of these on video? And by their calculations, they found out that there was they discovered a um basically a a, a ballot stuffing ring that that uh went on in the five swing states that were that shut down the ballot count on election night. And how much you want to bet this happens all over the country, especially in the blue states? How much you want to bet that Gavin Newsom didn't really win his recall election? How much you want to bet? That certain members of Congress didn't really win their elections. How much you want to bet that Joe Biden was rubber stamped on January 6th because a lot of the senators and representatives cheated in their own elections and they didn't want to they didn't want to give give up the game. I have said for quite a while. That there are no blue states, there are only stolen ones, and there are probably a lot of Republicans that should shouldn't be where they are either. But let's read some stories here. Some of the fallout. New Mexico audit identifies feature in Dominion voting machines that allows ballots to be filled out by the machine itself. So I didn't know there was a audit going on in New Mexico, but I'm glad there is. You know. The 2,000 mules are only one part of the whole election fraud, you know, 
scheme. There's like all sorts of different aspects. But um, on Monday night in Alamogordo, Otero County, in Alamogordo, that must be the city, Otero County, Mexico, indivi- Mexico individuals involved in a 2020 election audit presented results from their audit to date. They identified a number of issues and some very shocking issues as well. The auditors found material issues with the voter rolls in the county. So this t- tweet by um, Nick Mosider. New Mexico Audit Force canvassed 20% of voter rolls in Otero County. 41% of the doors canvassed had issues. 30% didn't live at that, at that address. And 40% of those f- voted in the election. 4% of the doors they knocked on were ghost votes. 2% of the votes were canceled. So voter rolls are such a uh, huge, you know, weak spot in election integrity. You know, so many voter rolls are out of date or they include maybe illegal aliens, or they might include people who have moved to another to another you know, jurisdiction and can't vote in that area anymore. They might involve people who are dead. So anyone can create like a mail can create a mail-in ballot based on that incorrect data. A bunch of uh, a bunch of like mail-in ballots based on that in false information and stuff the ballot boxes. Another gateway put an article: Wisconsin Election Commission takes down voter roll list and voting history of seventy-seven point two million voters after release of two thousand mules documentary. Another fallout. Uh, the premiere of the much-anticipated 2000 Mules was held last week in theaters across the country and on virtual premiere online Saturday night. Catherine Engerbrecht and Greg Phillips, that's the guy. These these two are the ones who conducted the study. True the Vote investigators Catherine Engelbrecht and Greg Phillips have identified over 2,000 ballot trafficking mules in all the battleground states. These mules deposited hundreds of thousands of ballots into drop boxes during the 2020 election. The ballot fraud scheme produced enough ballots to steal the, steal the election for Joe Biden. According to the evidence discussed in the movie, if you factor in just the identified ballot trafficking, Trump won with 305 electoral votes. That does not even count all the other fraud that occurred during the, the election, like the mysterious ballot drops at 3 in the morning or the questionable voting, voting machines. The movie discusses the Democrat-linked stash houses, but does not mention any names or locations. On Saturday, Catherine Engelbrecht and Greg Phillips Announced they will be releasing all the ballot, all the addresses of ballot stash houses. Look for the Democrats to squirm. Now this, following the, well, and we'll get to that story a little later here. Following the release of 2,000 mules, last week something particular took place in Wisconsin. The Wisconsin Election Commission took down its voter roll list of all of the 7, 7.2 million names on the state's voter rolls. Wisconsin voter fraud investigator Jefferson Davis reached out to the uh, WEC after his team noticed this sudden development. Here is his letter to the WEC. Good morning, Megan and Robert. We've been getting reports over the weekend that there appears to be a major breach or compromise of some degree in the voting history for the nearly 7.2 million names on the rolls. I've attached screenshots of my account and the voting history shows no record and to contact the WEC. Please let me know ASAP what you were able to, what you were able to find out involving this highly unusual and mysterious development. Looking forward to hearing from you soon. Science Jefferson. 
This this morning, WE responded to Jefferson Davis. We were posting here the gateway pundits. So they claim it was a maintenance issue and they were fix they were fixing that morning. And that letter reads, uh, the Division of Enterprise Technology has to renew certificates for each and every domain the state owns periodically. At least one renewal did not go through, so they were fixing it this morning. Certificates are an essential component of security for any site. So if there's anything unusual with certificate, then communication stops. Hence, my vote can't obtain certain types of data from the database. I would agree a major breach sounds more exciting, but I wouldn't make it my first assumption. Signed, Robert Kehoe, Technology Director. So, if the election, if the Wisconsin Election Commission believes it can alter the bloated voter roll database without being identified, they are mistaken. So, that's that article. I mean, Gateway Pundit is just on top of the election theft. So, go ahead and follow them. From the conservative treehouse, I'll just read this headline here. Dinesh D'Souza claims Fox News host Tucker Carlson forbade mention of 2000 Mule documentary during interview with vote fraud expert. On May 5th, Fox News host Tucker Carlson interviewed Catherine Engelbrecht from True the Vote and discussed the massive ballot harvesting scheme in the 2020 election. The work done by Engelbrecht formed the basis for a documentary by Dinesh D'Souza that outlines the 2020 election fraud and how it was done using ballot mules. We noted at the time of the interview, it seemed odd that neither Tucker Carlson nor Catherine Engelbrecht would mention the documentary 2000 Mules that was premiering during the week of the interview. It all seemed rather curious. Well, now Dinesh D'Souza is stating that Tucker Carlson and his team specifically instructed Engelbrecht not to mention the movie. And there's a tweet by D'Souza here. I'm sorry to say Tucker Carlson and his team specifically instructed Catherine Engelbrecht of True the Vote not to mention the movie. And this is in response to another person, like Marissa Coppola, asking Tucker, are you going to mention 2,000 Mules? Have I missed it? So I wonder if such a stunning accusation and all the political implications within it for both Fox News and Carlson is going to lead a response from Tucker Carlson tonight. And this was from May 9th, last night. Is it going to... Or is this a coordinated PR truth-bending to stimulate more interest in the movie? According to a public release, 2,000 Mules netted more than $1 million in its first 12 hours. We read that story. And it's a clip of Tucker and the interview with, with Engelbrecht. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of us remember, you know, election night and how Fox called Arizona before... It was ready before the state was ready. So we know the Fox News is compromised. We've we've known that a lot of the corporate media, the cable news, they're only pretenders. They're only, you know, they only pretend to have certain values. I, I, I say this a lot. I'll repeat it. You know, I don't mind repeating it because I don't think it can be overstated. Conservatives and liberals are not each other's enemies. The real enemies are the fake politicians and the fake talking heads who pretend to have certain values and they misrepresent and slander one side or the other. So, I, you know, CNN and MSNBC are mouthpieces of the left. Fox is a mouthpiece of the right. But left and right are not, do not mean, really mean liberal and conservative. So, if you want the real story, 
listen to you know places like blogs like the last like Conservative Treehouse or Gateway Pundit or Reclaim the Net or Red State or Becca News. A lot of these independent outlets they cover they cover you know they can cover the news at a fraction of the cost of a corporate studio. They cover things, you know, because they can scan social media. They can travel. They can travel anywhere pretty easily. So they, um, so so often they're they they witness things right there at the source, or they can talk to someone who was who was there. So it really is a new a new um a new paradigm we're entering into. So I think one more article, and we'll uh, let it go here. After 2000 Mules premiere, True the Vote promises to pull the ripcord and release all the data. And this is something I was concerned with when I was watching the movie. Like, they say they have the data, they have the uh, cell phone data, the smartphone data, all the GPS data on, on the mules. I was really hoping they would make it, I was really hoping this would be publicly available so that people can, can um, research this independently. It looks like they're going to. This is on redstate.com. Dinesh D'Souza's new film, 2000 Mules, which, according to PolitiFact, suggests a nefarious conspiracy in which so-called mules submitted ballots en masse as part of a ballot harvesting operation in six swing states in numbers large enough to determine the outcome in that state and therefore the nation, premiered Wednesday at Mar-a-Lago, at Trump's, you know, resort. The film's findings are based on a review of more than 4 million minutes of ballot drop box surveillance film obtained via public record requests and analysis of a large trove of cell phone geo-tracking data. And smart cell phones and smartphones, they track they track your data, they track your um, location, and companies use this for marketing purposes. Like, they're able to uh, track your um, driving habits, but they, they can see what businesses you go to, and they can get, serve up ads for you that are tailor-made. True the Vote, a nonprofit organization focused on election integrity issues, obtained the data, and retained an investigator, Greg Phillips, to oversee the analysis. Likely knowing the fact that likely knowing that the fact checkers were going to be out in force immediately to attack the credibility of the film and the data presented therein, Engelbrecht set up a plan to have investigator Phillips perform a massive data dump they have codenamed Ripcord, so all the information True the Vote has will be publicly accessible. Ah, transparency. What's not to love? Engelbrecht announced the plan in a video posted to the group's Instagram page. The video portrays a staged conversation between Engelbrecht and Phillips, which ostensibly would have taken place after the film's release, in which Phillips asks her what she wants to do. Engelbrecht said, release it all. The video, the data, all of it. Make it all public. The world needs to see this. Phillips tells Engelbrecht that we've already built a plan. Then Engelbrecht asked how long it was going to take. Phillips replies, give me a few weeks. I'm leaving right now. Wait for my mark. Engelbrecht replies, and then we will pull the ripcord. All of it presumably presumably includes the names and addresses of the 501c3 nonprofits the group labeled as stash houses in the film. Yeah, that's how um that's how the operation was funded. Um, the, um all these so-called nonprofits and charities. They, a lot of them are politically are politically active, and they get money from big donors, including you know, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is mentioned in the film. His um, 
I keep forgetting the name of it, but the whole Zuckerbucks, you know, controversy, basically donating money to these um organizations. He actually funded a lot of the, uh, the installment of a lot of the ballot drop boxes. How much you want to bet his money was used to pay the mules to do their ballot harvesting work. According to the votes investigation, these nonprofit organizations served as a place for ballots to be stashed after they were collected from voters and a base from which mules were assigned to deliver ballots to the ballot collection boxes at various times and quantities that wouldn't cause alarm when reported on the drop boxes chain of custody reports. And they were the organizations through which the mules were paid per ballot delivered to drop to the drop boxes. Engelbrook says that mules were paid around $10 per ballot, but that but for that, but that for the Georgia Senate runoff, that price was higher. The group also spoke to multiple whistleblowers, one of whom was an election observer who contracted the national who contracted with the National Republican Senatorial Committee during the Georgia Senate runoff and observed what looked to him to be ballot harvesting occurring and reported such to the uh, NRSC. He claimed that the NRSC did nothing about that report. Presumably, the ripcord data would have more information about that informant's claim, as well as the others. As the New York Times has reported, geotracking data from smartphones is highly specific and is used by law enforcement for a pattern of life analysis. If the data in the ripcord data dump contains geotracking data showing, science, showing things like one person going to 10, 20, or 30 ballot drop boxes during one election and placing three or five or more ballots in each drop box, that would definitely put the rest of the Associated Press and PolitiFact's laughable contention in their debunking articles that the videos True the Vote obtained only show people legally returning five or six ballots. That's a terrible run-on sentence. But you get the point. While True the Vote's video says we'll have to wait a few weeks for the data to be released, it won't be surprising if it's released much sooner. Let's do this. So. And that's another reason why the... Um, the Roe v. Wade leak happened to distract from this and the uh, news that the COVID vaccine blood clot risk restricted to uh, eight, adults eighteen adults eighteen years or older. So I didn't talk about talk much about the COVID vaccine, but I think I'll save that for next week. But the left is throwing out everything they can. They're uh, they're trying to cause havoc. They're trying to they're trying to have a sequel. They're trying to have a replay of 2020, but we're in the uh, fool me twice phase of the uh, old old proverb. So it's time for people to you know be prepared. It's time for people to um, kind of slowly and steadily you know slowly and quietly gather resources like gold, Bitcoin, silver. Uh, non-perishable food. Uh, use things. Use apps like GetUpside or Gasplate to save money on gas. Um, start. You know, if you have a small, if you have a small business, you need to move it online. That, that's another. Th that's another service I offer on my um. And my services, you know, click on the link and you'll get, and you can get started with um, a company, a white service company. What a white label service that'll build you a website to help you sell online and sell to uh, anyone in the country. So get started on that. So this all shows that the left is, is worried. They're panicked. 
they wouldn't be they won't they wouldn't be acting this crazy this drastically if we didn't have them on the ropes. So take this all as a good sign. Take this all as a sign that the good guys are winning, that free that freedom is winning, that the masks are being pulled off, and we're and we're coming we're coming to you know inflection point. So be prepared. Get ready for a new economy, a true free market capitalist economy, not the fake kind that's you know controlled by the central banks. And be happy. I'm in houseman, letting you go. And just remember, it's okay to stand up for yourself. Have a good one.